Hello, everybody, and welcome back again to yet another episode of the Nail the Door Through podcast. You are tuned into our OITE review series, and uh, we are continuing on with some basic science. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fit started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. But again, you're tuned into our OITE reviews featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. Now, we do have some good news. We are um, working on having a uh, podcast companion to these episodes, but unfortunately, it looks like we probably won't be able to get through all the episodes prior to this year's OITE in 2021. So hopefully we will at least put something out that has a review or a little kind of notes that go over everything that we've already talked about and we'll get the real thing next year. So if you haven't already, go ahead and put your uh, your name and email in the uh, description below. You can find it in the show notes or you can find this really just anywhere in the podcast description. Click the link if you haven't already to get signed up just so you can get some um, early access to that. That may only happen if you uh, are, are signed up and you may find out a little early. Anyways, without further ado, let's go into the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, we've really talked a lot about these osteoblasts, but what exactly do osteoclasts do? Yeah, so these osteoclasts are going to be these multinuclear giant cells that are going to take away bone. They literally do the exact opposite of osteoblasts. Osteoblast B for build, build bone. Osteoclast, um, take away bone. So again, these are uh, multinucleated giant cells. And, and when they take away bone, they take away mineralized matrix only. They cannot resorb unmineralized osteoids. So osteoclasts take away mineralized matrix. Now we spoke about the osteoblast um, being, you know, kind of derived from that went, um, that, that went pathway, which you had beta cancinane. Um, and then, you know, we, we spoke about, um, we spoke about that, the normal pathway, just to, re just to reiterate again, uh, the normal pathway is when wind binds to LRP56 and prevents phosphorylation of beta cancinine. And that way that unphosphorylated beta cancinine um, can go through the nucleus and upregulate osteoblast differentiation. But where are osteoclasts derived from? Yeah, the osteoclasts are, they're from the hematopoietic cells of the kind of macrophage or monocyte lineage and osteoblasts are more of that mesenchymal stem cell lineage. So they're really from two different uh, stem cells themselves. And uh, like you just covered, they're multi-nucleated uh, and they actually, they take a product away. And that's how I remember uh, back in like med school and early on in residency, what they did is uh, or what lineage they were from is because they take something away, just like uh, PMNs or other uh, white blood cells uh, are taking away uh, like bacteria or viruses or something else from our blood. Um, these osteoclasts are multinuclear just like they are and they're taking away bone. So they're from the macrophage lineage uh, of hematopoietic stem cells. And what molecule uh, we've said it a hundred times so far, and we'll say it a hundred times again, but what molecule activates osteoclasts? 
Yeah, so this is going to be your rank ligand, which we talked about earlier, which is one of the things um, that the osteoblasts make. They make that rank ligand, which can go and, um, and activate the osteoclast to resorb bone. Um, so what are some things that stimulate rank ligand to, call, to cause bone resorption? Uh, so PTH. Uh, does and, and especially on a continuous basis and then also the um, inflammatory markers that we see in uh, acute fracture uh, healing or acute uh, fracture staging um, and other like metastatic pathways as well so you have IL-1 which is an inflammatory mediator and then you have PTHRP so it's kind of the uh, redheaded stepchild of PTH. So it's PTH related peptide. And uh, that is what helps cause bone resorption during uh, cancer uh, metastasis. And uh, what is the molecule that prevents rank ligand from doing its job after being released from the osteoblast? Yes, so it's like dun, 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 here comes the rescue osteoprotegrin. Uh, just like you said earlier, it says it in the name, it protects the bone. Um, so this osteoprotegrin is going to be a decoy receptor um, for the rank ligand. So osteoprotegrin is going to go and uh, and bind to that rank ligand and allow it not to bind to the osteoclast and resorb bone. So again, osteoprotegrin is going to help protect the bone. Now, what molecule decreases osteoclast activity by directly binding to the osteoclast? That is going to be calcitonin. Uh, and that is from the parafollicular cells of the thyroid. And just that right there may get you a point on either the boards or the OITE. Because although they may ask you exactly what is the function of calcitonin or uh, something like that. They might give you this entire vignette about calcitonin. And then the question will say, where does this molecule come from? So it's kind of one of those second stage things. Like, you know, they're talking about calcitonin, even though they didn't say the name directly, but you have to find out where it's from. And that's the parafollicular cells. Uh, and then it's really the opposite effect of PTH. And uh, I don't, we haven't quite covered that yet, but PTH is from the chief cells of the parathyroid. Um, so calcitonin, parafollicular cells, PTH is from the chief cells. And that those two points right there may get you uh, a point or two on the test. And um, so calcitonin does bind directly to the osteoclast, but what's its effect? Yeah, so again, it's going to slow bone resorption um, by decreasing osteoclast activity, and it's going to decrease your serum calcium. So you have high levels, of, high levels of calcium, that calcitonin is released and can go and bind to the osteoclast. Say, hey, stop, stop taking all this calcium for the bones. We have too much in the blood. Uh, calm down. And so it'll do that. Um, now, just to triple, triple reinforce uh, what cell makes osteoprotegrin, which we spoke about earlier, is going to uh, be the decoy receptor for that rank ligand, which is secreted by osteoblasts. And that is going to be the osteocytes. And uh, I, the, the best way I've found to remember this outside of just looking at it and knowing it is 
the osteocytes are kind of the the parent cells of the bone. They're the oldest ones. They're the ones that are the most stable in uh, the bone, like in the life of the bone, it, it, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so they're going to be the ones that are kind of going to release that protection uh, decoy receptor because they want to preserve their livelihood. They want to preserve their spot in this universe and uh, they're going to release that. So it's going to be the osteocytes. And uh, going back to the osteoclast though, uh, there's, uh, I, I guess like how exactly does an osteoclast resorb bone? What, what structure forms? Yeah. So I don't know. If you see the pictures, it always makes me think of like an alien spaceship or something like just tentacles or something that comes down. And I use it yep. as kind of a metaphor <laughs> for uh, this bone resorption recurs at what's called the ruffled border, which is this plasma membrane of enfoldings that increase your surface area. So for resorption. So um, and these kind of form these house ships lacunae. In, in the bone or in these areas. So if you think about like a big spaceship coming down, they have a, a bunch of tentacles, Those all those little tentacles increase the surface area, kind of like the gut, right? Like kind of when you think about going back to med school and, and small intestine, they, they have these they have these little uh, foldings, projections that increase the surface area for absorption. So it's something very similar with osteoclast. And um, these are gonna uh, go to this, this ruffled border and these are gonna form these uh, host, uh, house ships lacunae uh, which is going to be this area of, of bones that are going to get resorbed. So you think about an alien ship is coming coming to abduct humans, and uh, it's finally it's find some you know a bunch of humans somewhere, and it's going to bind there, and it's going to take us all up and take us away. Um, uh, but continuing, how does the osteoclast actually bind to the bone? So you have you know say for example we have this big old old spaceship. How does it find what humans that it wants? You know how does it how does it figure it out? How do you know? Uh, that's going to be through the uh, integrins and uh, there's so there's uh, it, the vitronectins and the integrin uh, kind of binding to each other are going to keep that osteoclast where it is. They're going to keep that uh, all of the molecules we're going to learn about in a few seconds here that actually cause the resorption of that matrix uh, in the area so that they just don't get released out into the entire extracellular matrix and cause uh, kind of relentless bone destruction. But it's going to be, yeah, these integrins uh, on the osteoclast, they are going to bind with the vitronectins on the bone and seal the space below that house ship's lacunae. Again, like that uh, spaceship you're talking about here. And uh, for those of you that are still awake, uh, what is the <laughs> amino acid sequence that's actually found on the bone for uh, vibronectin uh, and or where it's vibronectin and integrin can actually bind? What is that amino acid sequence? Yeah, so it's this RGD sequence or this arginine, glycine, and aspartate uh, sequence. Like RGD is, is sometimes I've seen that. But is that, and sometimes in questions I've seen it as ARG, um, arginine, glycine, and aspartate. Again, so this is like on the bone where the uh, viral nectin is. This is what the integrins are looking for. So 
I don't know, what's something, say, for example, there's a, a spaceship going uh, to get somebody on a, on a ship and there's some pirates are looking for the pirates and the pirates go, and, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's how they're looking like, okay, that's, those are the people we're going to get. That's how we know this is what we're going to bind to. And that's the vibronectin. So uh, RGD, uh, that arginine glycine aspartate, um, that is the sequence that the integrins on the osteoclast are looking for on um, the vibronectins um, on uh, on the bone. So how does the osteoclast actually resorb it, right? So we, we know that it has this ruffled border and, you know, that's where it's going to resorb everything in these lacunae and, you know, the ship has calmed down and the integrins on the ship has found this this uh, amino acid sequence, the RGD sequence, and, and these pirates um, of the vitronectins, and, and all right, they, they they found their place. Now, how do they actually do it? How do they how do they get the humans up, or how do they resorb all those bone cells? Um, so I like the uh, that alien spaceship uh, kind of reference you made earlier, and I'm actually glad I got I get to talk about this because there's the first start off. Uh, and you guys will understand what I'm talking about in a couple of seconds, why I'm excited about this <laughs> is, is uh, TRAP or tartrate resistant acid phosphatase. And what that does is it lowers the pH using carbonic anhydrase uh, to create an acidic environment. And TRAP, uh, I, for some reason, I always think of Admiral Akbar in Return of the Jedi, and he says, it's a trap. <laughs> uh, and that's just one way that helps me kind of uh, think about this or remember that that's what's released in the house ships lacunae. And for those of you that want to go down the uh, internet hole and get lost in memes and other things, there's, if you just search, it's a trap, you'll come up with a star Wars song. There's a family guy episode about it and about a hundred different memes that, that go over Admiral Akbar and uh, it's a trap. So I'm uh, kind of back to, back to the serious note here. Um, I'm looking with, it up now. I see it. all the memes <laughs> came up. <laughs> all right, we're continuing on. <laughs> uh, uh, and I think that there's a uh, there's some Cartoon Network thing that that has Admiral Akbar cereal and all this stuff. So whatever. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyways, what the acidic environment of the house ships lacunae uh, created by the carbonic anhydrase it makes the hydroxyapatite crystals more soluble and easier to be taken up by the uh, osteoclast. And then uh, another big uh, enzyme that you need to know about is cathepsin K. Um, and that is basically, it's a proteolytic uh, enzyme that, that causes digestion of the matrix within that Hauschips lacunae. So uh, trap, and cathepsin K are probably the things that are going to be uh, tested the most about what uh, is found within the house ships lacunae. And uh, also there's things that are uh, kind of, there's diseases associated with these sort of uh, uh, enzymes or, or structures. And what happens when there's a mutation in carbonic anhydrase? Yeah, so that's gonna be that osteopetrosis. Uh, which we will we'll get into uh, much more in detail a little bit later, but no carbonic anhydrase deficiency. Again, where you cannot make that acidic environment to start to resorb all these different um, hydroxyapatite crystals and bone cells. Um, 
we know that that is called osteopetrosis. Um, and, and again, that's a mutation in the carbonic anhydrase. Now, what is it called when there is, I was messed up the wording of this up. So <laughs> this came on your question, so you can, you can pronounce it. Uh, but <laughs> what is it called when there is a mutation in Caspin K? So Cathepsin K, uh, when that when that has a mutation, there's uh, it's a disease called pycnodysostosis, and it's a uh, rare autosomal recessive disorder, which is um, characterized by uh, and I'm this is not from memory, everybody. I'm googling this and reading it to you off of uh, <laughs> my computer screen. So pycnodysostosis is a rare autosomal recessive disorder characterized by a postnatal onset of short limbs, short stature, and generalized hyperostosis, along with acroosteolysis with sclerosis of the phalanges. So, uh, and for some reason, it's the sclerosis of the phalanges is a feature that is considered pathognomonic for this. I will buy every resident in the entire nation a beer if there is a question that covers <laughs> pycnodysostosis. But um, it's it, it pretty much it sounds like a, a disease that's similar to osteopetrosis, meaning it's a generalized hyperostosis. So if you have a lack of carbonic anhydrase or a lack of cathepsin K, the osteoclast can't do their job and bone formation is going to rule and bone degradation is going to slow down. So you're just going to get very dense bones. Um, the uh, Going back to that bone matrix and we know that the cathepsin K degrades that bone matrix, um, but what type of collagen makes up a majority of that bone matrix? Yeah, so it's going to be that type one collagen is going to give you that tensile strength. Now, I remember watching some video when I was in med school and um, and they gave like this mnemonic and I don't remember the whole thing, but they're talking about the different types of cartilage and cartilage. And they're like, the way to remember it's like um, um, strong, slippery, bloody BM and strong was for type one collagen, which was like bone slippery was type two collagen, which was like cartilage. Um, type three, um, strong, slippery, um, bloody was for like, um, you know, when there are uh, different types of, uh, I think you can actually get this in tendon healing and things of that sort. And then type four collagen was in like the basement membrane. So strong, slippery, uh, bloody, bloody, uh, BM. So strong again, type one collagen, which is basically bone type two is going to be, um, that articular cartilage. I um, never heard that before. Yeah, me either. But I heard it one time for some reason it stuck with me. So that's the easy way I remember the, the four types go. of cartilage. Uh, and continuing on, what are some components um, of or what are some other components of uh, organic bone matrix besides this type one um, collagen, which gives it that tensile strength? The uh, other thing that we hear a lot about are these proteoglycans, and they're going to help the compressive strength of bone. Um, proteoglycans, I think, are a little bit more covered or at least understood in articular cartilage, but they uh, actually attract water. And when you have water confined in a stable volume, it's non-compressible. So these proteoglycans are going to attract water and improve the compressive strength of bone. Um, you're going to have osteocalcin, which is produced by osteoblasts. And a side note, 
which may get you a point uh, on the test is that osteocalcin is the most abundant non-collagenous matrix protein. Um, osteonectin is another uh, protein that's produced, but not to the level of osteocalcin. And then uh, hydroxyapatite, which um, we're starting to see is uh, being covered in a lot of uh, orthopedic implants to really help stimulate bone formation and uh, hydroxyapatite also helps with the compressive strength of bone. We, we just started here. Uh, we're part of our uh, mega prostheses or these endoprostheses for uh, uh, reconstruction of large bone defects or tumors. Um, the uh, part of the component that abuts the bone uh, that you that you cut off and you're reconstructing like a proximal femur replacement, the part of the component that's right up next to the bone, we started actually covering in hydroxyapatite to help stimulate that kind of bone implant interface uh, strength. Um, yeah. And, and I think and our hydroxyapatite um, yeah. coated like X-fix pins too and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really just all to just help the implant bone interface become a little bit stronger so uh who knows how much it actually truly does it i mean there's there is some science behind it that that does show it on a microscopic level but um i i think the the verdict is still out there for its its true value and and some of those other things but we'll see how we kind of progress in the next 10 to 15 years with all this hydroxyapatite coated uh implants um and then now we're going to get into a little bit of some physics here for a, a few minutes. Um, what is Wolf's Law? Yeah, so Wolf's Law is kind of like this bone remodeling that occurs um, that occurs to mechanical stress. So, you know, like bones adapt to the degree of mechanical loading. So, you know, like based of loading, you know, for example, when you're like lifting weights or walking or something on bone will cause an... Um, uh, kind of cause the architecture of the bone to strengthen um, and then kind of following by strengthening of cortical layer. So uh, Wolf's Law is bone remodeling that occurs in response to mechanical stress. And a lot of times you can see this, like if you look at the trabeculae of like the femoral neck and those kind of trabecular lines and um, those areas where there's a little bit of increased bone, uh, those are all kind of things that that are, are showing how this uh, Wolf's Law, uh, it, it can be applied and, and seen in, in the real life. Uh, on the other side, what is this kind of Huter-Volkman Law? The Huter-Volkman Law is uh, really what's used in uh, pediatric hemiepiphysiodesis. Um, and that is that compressive forces inhibit growth while tensile forces stimulate growth, which, but I mean, it kind of just makes sense that if you're going to keep something compressed, it can't grow. But if you're going to try and pull something apart, it, it grows. So um, the Huter-Volkman law, and I, I encourage everyone listening to really take this basic science stuff and try and incorporate it into the real life stuff that you do in practice. And, and I'm going to give the best examples I can think of to help you understand this. But yeah, Huter Volkman, think pediatric hemiepiphysiodesis where you shut down one half of the uh, growth plate 
so that their limb alignment can improve and it doesn't grow on that side and it grows on the other side. So you can correct either genuvalgum or genuverum uh, in, in uh, those certain ways while tensile uh, pressure on the growth plate or on the bone is going to enhance the growth of it. Um, and then some anatomy here, uh, where do long bones get most of their blood supply from? Yeah, so most of the blood supply is going to be from kind of these Newton arteries that supply the inner two-thirds of the mature cortex, these those systems we were talking about earlier, kind of those reversion systems or Folkman systems, uh, which are kind of these, these vascular channels that, um, that help supply, and you have these kind of these osteos and these, these network of cells. So... Uh, the nutrient artery is going to supply the inner two thirds of the of the mature cortex, and the rest is going to come from this kind of metaphyseal epiphyseal system as well as a periop. So, like if you think of like ream intramedullary nailing, um, you a lot of that uh, inner blood supply is destroyed, um, but you still have that periosteum that's going to give you some of that blood supply. Versus kind of the opposite, if you go and you're doing a dissection and you strip the entire bone and strip all the periosteum off the bone circumferentially along the whole bone, you've therefore thus stripped a third of the blood supply of um, of to that bone. And if you know if there's a fracture and some of that inner blood supply is um, also um, also disrupted, you know, that leads you towards higher chances of having non-unions. So um, just like you were just saying not too long ago, you got to know or you try to correlate the basic science to the real world applications and that may help it stick a little bit. Uh, continuing on, uh, what is the typical blood flow to bones and how, how does it change with fracture? So I, I always got these confused um, and I don't know if you have a better way of kind of remembering this stuff, but there's centripetal and centrifugal. So the centrifugal is blood flow from the inside to the outside or from high to low pressure. And uh, when a fracture disrupts the nutrient artery or that endosteal supply, you rely on the centripetal blood flow, which is outside in. So centrifugal is from the inside out, centripetal is from outside in, and a fracture can disrupt that blood supply because you're disrupting the nutrient artery and that very robust endosteal supply. Um, so does, and, and I know that you, you really hinted at this as kind of a real world application and this is one of those questions that's like, well, yeah, duh, but does blood flow <laughs> play any part in how well a fracture heals? Yeah, this is one of those, uh, well, yeah, duh, it does. Um, it definitely plays a part in how uh, fractures heal. So you, you kind of need to know these things, you know, uh, things need blood to heal, you know? So if, if you're, um, if you have, uh, have a fracture and again, you, completely strip all the bone on the outside and all the inside um, blood supply to the bone is not healed. That blood, those blood cells need, you know, nutrients and oxygen and different things to survive. And if it does not have any of those, some of those bone cells can die and that can lead to non-unions. Um, in some cases it can probably lead to some necrosis of some sort as well. So 
blood supply and blood flow plays a uh, big part is how fracture heals. That's why sometimes you have a lot of these kind of minimally invasive techniques and plate application to preserve some of that blood supply to the bone and help decrease your chance of non-unions. Which again, think about the long run, taking care of patients decreases their need for more surgery, can help decrease your complications. So as long as you know some of these basic science things, they can uh, they all definitely have real world applications. And uh, continuing forth, uh, what are the three types of bone formation? You have intramembranous, you have endochondral, and then you have appositional. The uh, intramembranous does not rely on a cartilage scaffold uh, like the endochondral where uh, a cartilage scaffold is formed and then slowly those uh, cartilage cells are replaced by bone. Um, you also see endochondral with fractured callus. Um, and briefly going back, intramembranous, you also see uh, intramembranous bone formation via distraction osteogenesis, where you can either use like a Taylor spatial frame or these new precise nails that will increase limb length or uh, if you're trying to fill in a bone void, you slowly distract the uh, pieces of bone at a rate where the body can still form a network of cells and matrix that is causing bone to form in between those uh, two separate pieces of healthy bone that you're distracting apart from each other. And then finally, appositional growth, which is basically increasing the width of bone and uh, you see a combination of appositional and endochondral with fractured callus. And uh, what that's doing is um, it's increasing the moment of inertia that we know a fractured callus is weaker than uh, normal bone. But if you increase the width of that weaker area, you increase the surface area or that diameter, it will improve the strength. And you also see oppositional bone growth with the perichondral ring of Lacroix in the uh, pediatric growth plate that we know that the growth plate is the weakest area of bone, but by laying down some of that bone matrix in an appositional way by increasing that width or increasing that diameter, it will provide extra strength to that weaker area of bone. So uh, the three types of bone formation, you have intramembranous, endochondral, and appositional. And going to endo endochondral, what's, what's the process of endochondral bone formation? Yeah, so when you're looking at endochondral bone formation, you have these undifferentiated cells um, that, that make this kind of cartilaginous matrix, which then turns into chondrocytes. Um, you have your, your matrix then becomes mineralized, and then you have your vascular buds that invade and bring these osteoprogenator cells. So again, it starts off with undifferentiated cells. You have cartilage, which makes this cartilaginous matrix, and you have chondrocytes. And then that matrix mineralizes, and then you have these vascular buds that are going to come and bring these osteoprogenator cells. Um, the chondrocytes that, uh, I'm sorry, the cartilage that is produced by the chondrocytes are taken up by the osteoblast. And then the osteoblast, I'm sorry, it's taken up by the osteoclast. And then the osteoblast is going to make bone on that um, cartilaginous framework. So again, uh, endochondral bone formation, 
you have these uh, you have this cartilaginous matrix when you have chondrocytes and then that matrix gets mineralized and then you get some blood vessels that start to come in and you bring these osteoprogenator cells in the osteoclasts absorb the cartilage and the osteoblast is going to make bone on that cartilaginous framework. Thank you all for listening yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. This is our OITE review series, and we are going through basic science still. And uh, please share this with one other person and go and leave a review. And please just give us a five-star rating in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, however you listen to us. And until next time.